the first American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature, is our author today. Hi, welcome back. It's Sinclair Lewis. Uh-huh. Today's short story is actually not a short story. It's part of his novel, Cast Timberlane. There's also a movie, a 1947 movie, same name, don't miss it, starring Spencer Tracy, my favorite wonderful actor, Spencer Tracy. In fact, don't miss any movie starring Spencer Tracy. You won't be disappointed. And if you don't fall asleep first while I'm reading this to you, you won't be disappointed in today's tale either. So, please, tuck in and enjoy. Virga Vey and Alan Cedar. Orlo Vey, the Chippewa Avenue optician. Smart art harlequin tinted tortoise frames our specialty. Was a public figure, as public as a cemetery. He was resentful that his profession, like that of an undertaker, a professor of art, or a Mormon missionary was not appreciated for its patience and technical skill, as are the callings of wholesale grocer or mistress or radio sports commentator. And he tried to make up for the professional injustice by developing his personal glamour. He wanted to belong. He was a speaker. He was hearty and public about the local baseball and hockey teams, about the Kiwanis Club, about the Mayflower Congregational Church, and about all war drives. At 45, he was bald, but the nobly glistening egg of his face and forehead, whose arc was broken only by a pair of they lie high bifocals was an adornment to all fundraising rallies. He urged his wife, Virja, to cooperate in his spiritual efforts, but well, she was a small, scared, romantic woman ten years his junior, an admirer, admirer of passion in technicolor, a clipper out of newspaper lyrics about love and autumn smoke upon the hills. He vainly explained to her, in these modern days a woman can't fritter away her time daydreaming. She has to push her own weight and not hide it under a bushel. Her solace was in her lover, Dr. Alan Cedar, the dentist. Together, Virgia and Alan would have been a most gentle pair, small, clinging, and credulous. But they could never be openly together. <laughs> They were afraid of Mr. Vey, oh, and of Alan's fat and vicious wife, Bertha. And they met at soda counters in outlying drugstores, 
and lovingly drank black and whites together or jumbo malteds, whatever those are, and giggling ate ferocious banana splits or till wartime gasoline rationing, sorry, rationing prevented, they sped out in Alan's coop by twilight and, get ready, made shy, eager love in mossy pastures or by the weak dash light of the car, read aloud surprisingly good recent hmm, poets, Wallace Stevens, Sandberg, Robert Frost, Jeffers, T.S. Eliot, Lindsay. Allen was one of the best actors in the Maskers, a club. And though Virga could not act, she made costumes and hung about at rehearsals, and thus they were able to meet and to stir the suspicions of Bertha Cedar. Mrs. Cedar, ah, she was a rare type of vicious woman. She really hated her husband, though she did not so much as scold him as mock him for his effeminate love of acting, for his verses, for his cherubic mustache, and even for his skill with golden bridge work. She jeered in the soap-reeking presence of her seven sisters and sisters-in-law, all chewing gum and adjusting their plates, that as a lover, Allie had no staying powers. That's what she thought. She said to her mother, Allie is a bum dentist. He hasn't got a single rich patient. And when they were at an evening party, she communicated to the festal guests, Allie can't even pick out a necktie without asking my help. And on everything her husband said, she commented, Oh, don't be silly. She demanded and received large sympathy from all the females she knew. And as he was fond of golf and backgammon, she refused to learn either of them. Whenever she had irritated him into jumpiness, she said, judiciously. Well, you seem to be a, in a very nervous state. She picked at him about his crossword puzzles, about his stamp collection, until he screamed invariably, oh, let me alone. And then she was able to say smugly, I don't know what's the matter with you, so touchy about every little thing. You better go to the mind doctor and have your head examined. Then Bertha, quite unexpectedly, inherited $7,000 and a house in San Jose, California, from a horrible aunt. She did not suggest to her husband, but told him that they would move out to that paradise for chilled Minnesotans. And... He would practice there. It occurred to Alan to murder her, but not to refuse to go along. Many American males confuse their wives and the policemen on the beat. But 
He knew that it would be death for him to leave Verge of A. And that afternoon, when Verge slipped into his office at three o'clock, in response to his code telephone call of, this is the Super Bowl market and we're sending you three bunches of asparagus, she begged, couldn't we elope someplace together and maybe we could get a little farm? Uh, she'd find us. She has a cousin who's a private detective in Duluth. Yes, I guess she would. Can't we ever be together always? No. There is one way, if, if you wouldn't be afraid. He explained the way. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid if you stayed right with me, she said. Dr. Alan Cedar was an excellent amateur machinist. On a Sunday afternoon when Bertha was visiting her mother, he cut a hole through the steel bottom of the luggage compartment of his small dark gray coupe. This compartment opened into the body of the car. That same day, he stole the hose of their vacuum cleaner and concealed it upon the rafters of their galvanized iron garage. On Tuesday, now this was in February, he bought a blue ready-made suit at Golden Cron Brothers on Ignatius Street. He was easy to fit, and no alterations were needed. They wanted to deliver the suit that afternoon, but he insisted, no, hold it here for me, and I'll come in and put it on tomorrow morning. I want to surprise somebody. Oh, your missus will love it, Doc, said Monty Goldencron. Well, I hope she will when she sees it. He also bought three white linen shirts and a red bow tie and paid cash for the lot. Oh, your credit's good here, Doc. None better, protested Monty. Alan puzzled him by the triumphant way in which he answered, I want to keep it good just now. From Golden Crons, he walked perkily to the Emporium, to the Golden Rule drugstore, to the Cooperative Dairy, paying his bills in full at each. On his way, he saw a distinguished fellow townsman, Judge Timberlane, Cass Timberlane, and his pretty wife, played by Lana Turner in the movie. Alan had never said ten words to either of them, but he thought affectionately, there's a couple who are intelligent enough and warm-hearted enough to know what love is worth. That evening, he said blandly to his wife, strangest thing happened today. The University School of Dentistry telephoned me. Oh, long distance? Surely. Well, her tone was less of disbelief than of disgust. They're having a special brush-up session for dentists, and they want me to come down to Minneapolis first thing tomorrow morning to stay for three days and give instruction in bridge work. Hmm? Give instruction, mind you. And of course, you must come along. 
It's too bad I'll have to work from nine in the morning till midnight. They do rush those special courses so, but you can go to the movies by yourself or just sit comfortably in the hotel. No, thank you, said Bertha. I'd prefer to sit here at home. Why you couldn't have been an M.D. doctor and take out gallbladders and make some real money. And I'll thank you to be home not later than Sunday morning. You know we have Sunday dinner with Mother. Mm, he knew. I hope that long before that I'll be home, he said. He told her that he would be staying at the Flora Hotel in Minneapolis. But on Wednesday morning, after putting on the new suit at Golden Cron's, he drove to St. Paul through light snowflakes, which he thought of as fairies. But I haven't a bit of real poet in me, just second-rate and banal, he sighed. He tried to make a poem and got no farther than it is snowing, the wind is blowing, but I am happy to be going. In St. Paul, he went to the small, clean hotel Orkness, registered as Mr. A. M. Romeo and wife, asked for a room with a double bed and explained to the clerk my wife is coming by train. She should be here in about 17 minutes now, I figure it. He went unenthusiastically to the palsied elevator up to their room. It was tidy and on the wall was an Adolf Den lithograph instead of the fake English hunting print that he had dreaded. He kneaded the bed with his fist. He was pleased. Virgia Vey arrived 19 minutes later with a bellboy carrying her new imitation leather bag. So, you're here, husband. Not a bad room, she said indifferently. The bellboy knew from her indifference and from her calling the man husband that she was not married and unstintingly in love. Such paradoxes are so common in his subterranean business that he'd forgotten about Virgia by the time he reached his bench in the lobby. Six stories above him, Virgia and Alan were lost and blind and quivering in their kiss. Presently, she said, oh, you have a new suit. Oh, turn around. Why, it fits beautifully, and such a nice red tie. You do look so young and cute in a bow tie. Did you get it from me? Of course. And then, I kind of hate to speak of it now, but I want us to get so used to the idea that we can just forget it. I don't want us to look frowsy when they find us. And if we hadn't been happy as if we hadn't been happy, and we will be. We are. Yes. You're still game for it. With you, anything. He was taking off the new suit 
and she was tenderly lifting from her bag a nightgown which she had made and embroidered this past week. They had all their meals in the room. They did not leave it till afternoon of the next day. The air became a little close, thick from perfume and cigarette smoke and bubble baths they took together. Late the next afternoon, they dressed and packed their bags completely. He laid on the bureau two $10 bills. They left the luggage at the foot of their bed, which she had made up. She took nothing from the room, and he nothing except a paper bag containing a bottle of bourbon whiskey with the cork loosened and a pocket anthology of new poetry. At the door, she looked back and said to him, I shall remember this dear room as long as we live. Yes, as long as we live. He took his dark gray coupe out of the hotel garage, tipping an amazed attendant one dollar. Okay, it was the 40s. And they drove to Indian Mounds Park, overlooking the erratic Mississippi. He stopped in the park at dusk and said, Think of the Indians that came along here. Oh, and Pike and Lewis Cass. They were brave, she mused. Brave, too. <laughs> they nervously laughed. Indeed, after a moment of solemnity, when they had left the hotel, they had been constantly gay, laughing at everything. Even when she sneezed and he piped, no more worries about catching pneumonia. He drove into a small street nearby and parked the car distant from any house. Working in the half darkness, leaving the engine running, he pushed the vacuum cleaner hose through the hole in the bottom of the luggage compartment, wired it to the exhaust pipe and hastily got back into the car. The windows were closed. Already, the air in the car was sick sweet with carbon monoxide. He slipped the whiskey bottle out of the paper bag and tenderly urged, take a swig of this, keep your courage up. Dearest, I don't need anything to keep it up. I do, by golly. I'm not a big he-man like you, Verge. They both laughed and drank from the bottle and kissed lingeringly. I wonder if I could smoke a cigarette. I don't think CO2 is explosive, he speculated. Oh, sweet. Be careful. It might explode. Yes, it, oh, and then he shouted, listen to us, as if we cared if we got blown up now. Oh, I am too brainless, Alan. I don't know if you'll be able to stand me much longer. As long as we live, my darling, my very dear, oh, my very dear, as long as we live, we're together now, together.
his head aching, his throat sore. He forgot to light up that cigarette. He switched on the tiny dash light. He lifted up the book as though it were a bar of lead. And from Conrad Aiken's C. Holly, he began to read to her. It was for this barren beauty, barrenness of rock that aches on the seaward path, seeing the fruitful sea, hearing the lark of rock that sings. He was too drowsy to read more than just the ending. Stone pain in the stony heart. The rock loved and labored and all is lost. The book fell to the seat. His head drooped and his arm groped drowsily about her. She rested contentedly in vast dreams, her head secure upon his shoulder. Harsh screaming snatched them back from paradise. The car windows were smashed. Someone was dragging them out. And Bertha was slapping Virgia's face while Bertha's cousin, the detective, was beating Alan's shoulders with a blackjack to bring him to. In doing so, he broke Alan's jaw. Bertha drove him back to Grand Republic and nursed him while he was in bed, jeering to the harpies whom she had invited in. Allie tried to, <laughs> you know, with a woman, but he was no good, and he was so ashamed he tried to kill himself. He kept muttering, please, go away and don't torture me. She laughed. Later, Bertha was able to intercept every one of the letters that Virgia sent to him from Des Moines, where she had gone to work in a five and ten cent store after Orlo had virtuously divorced her. Love. Allie is learning what that kind of mush gets you, Bertha explained to her attentive women friend.